As you know, the title of this podcast, the tagline on my blog, and the website address for my upcoming book is Nonprofits Are Messy. My friend and fellow blogger, Vu Lee, his blog is called Nonprofit with Balls, kind of takes issue with my characterization of nonprofits as messy. Interestingly, there are those who take issue with the name of his blog, and Vu is in the process of rebranding, not me. But you see, Vu's issue is that I let nonprofits off the hook by characterizing them as messy, or that I diminish the sector in some way. The assumption in that is that the word messy is a pejorative. Well, sometimes that's true. When I find, uh, like, dried old hummus and stale pita under a stack of dirty clothes in my kid's room, I would likely use the word mess quite loudly, and it would indeed be a pejorative. But I see nonprofits as messy not only as a factual statement, but if nonprofit leaders own the hardwired messiness, there's opportunity. So I became a woman with a mission. Find a guest that was a kindred spirit when it comes to my belief that mess spells opportunity. I hit the jackpot and found the gifted author who tackled this very issue in his book called Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. I think you're going to love this conversation. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it. And she is here to help. Our guest today is Tim Harford. He's an economist, journalist, and a broadcaster. He's the author of Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives, and the million-selling The Undercover Economist. He's also a senior columnist at the Financial Times and the presenter of Radio 4's More or Less and the iTunes-topping series 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. He's spoken at TED, Pop Tech, the Sydney Opera House, and he's a visiting fellow of Nuffield College in Oxford. Tim Harford, thank you very much for joining me. It's my pleasure, Joan. So in your book, you celebrate the benefits that messiness has in our lives, why it's important, why we resist it, and why we should embrace it instead. Um, and you played around with neuroscience and psychology, social science. Um, and you explain that the human qualities that we value, like creativity and responsiveness, resilience, are actually integral to the disorder, confusion, and disarray that produce them all of which is very fascinating to, and to some a bit counterintuitive. But I wanted to start with a question about how you came to embrace this topic. I mean, you're known as an economist. What's the common thread between your previous writings and this one? And did you have kind of an aha moment that led to say, I need to write this book? I was, I was originally interested in the question of working across silos, working across disciplines. And I was asking myself, why is it that we we see we struggle to that we economists we struggle to talk to the sociologists or the psychologists and you know why can't why can't liberals talk to conservatives why can't conservatives talk to liberals you know why why do we have all this misunderstanding why is it so hard to to work together and that that was the starting point for the book but of course it turned into a celebration of something I think very different which yeah. was of serendipity and of uh, good things coming out of error and of improvisation and 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 of diversity, uh, and I had a tremendous amount of fun working on the book. I mean, the great thing about being a, a writer is that you 
if you find something that interests you, you can just chase after it and chase after it. And, and that's what I did. I suppose there is a there is a, a continuation from uh, one of my previous books, which was called Adapt, Why Success Always Starts With Failure, which was about trial and error. And there's definitely a connection between mess and trial and error. Uh, and I suppose all, all economists are interested in trial and error because they see the economy itself as a trial and error process. But but you're right. I mean, I, I start the, the book with a discussion of uh, a famous jazz concert. So, I mean, it, I've come a long way from the undercover economist, I have to say. I've strayed. Um, but that's okay, because you actually just sort of went where you wanted to go, in, in some kind of almost improvisational way, right? Absolutely. The, the process of writing the book was a messy process, which you know, I, don't, I don't need to apologize for that, right? Because that's mm -hmm. just, just like I wrote a book about mistakes, I don't need to apologize for making mistakes either. I just get on with it. <laughs> um, it's good cover. Um, really is. Yeah. Um, so I, I really kind of like this idea that freed from the constraint of bureaucracy, rules, and order, innovation and creativity can find fertile ground, and that allowing for mistakes kind of offers you the opportunity to learn. But we live in a world that really values those things, bureaucracy, rules, order. So how does an organization or a person kind of shoot for mess in a world that actually values the opposite of it? Yeah, I'm not sure the world values bureaucracy, but uh, I know what you mean. We, <laughs> well, we, order. Let's. Okay, fair enough. We, fair enough. We certainly value. We we value our systems. Um, we we value a certain amount of predictability. We are creatures of habit, and um, I think it's certainly true. In the introduction to our conversation, you were saying how a mess seemed. You know, it seemed like a pejorative term, and I think that's right. You know, nobody ever has to apologize for being tidy. You never have to apologize for being tidy. You have to apologize for being messy, and 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 it's it's never a compliment to say that something's a mess. Right. Um. So we, we've we've seen these these systems around us of of quantification and uh, of standardization. You know, everything from the spreadsheet to the to-do list to, I don't know, the shipping container. Shipping container, amazing invention. It's basically all about standardization, and that gets things done, gets things shipped around the world. Right. So we see these systems. We see them in our own lives. We see them in the economy uh, and in our society. And um, and we say, oh, well, they're, they're, they're very effective. We should use them. Uh, and those systems often are very effective. And then we, we apply them in places where they don't belong, where they don't help. We apply them in situations which are intrinsically messy. Mm -hmm. um, and then we get frustrated because we're not getting the results that we want. So for example, uh, I think once you've had a really great idea, uh, as an organization, you need to work through how you're gonna deliver on, on the promise. And that requires systems and accountability and checklists and those things work. Right. But in that early stage, when you're, you're casting around for new ideas, that's an intrinsically very messy process. I think that can't be systematized. And, and there are lots of other examples. If we're just talking around about the way I organize my home, uh, my kitchen is tidy. I'm a tidy person. Everything's in the, the proper place in the kitchen. The cutlery's mm -hmm. in the cutlery drawer. The wine glasses are, are, are in the glassware cupboard. Except when but they're my, uh, out and full. Except when I, except exactly except when I'm using them, and then yeah. But the point is that actually, 
often when these systems are in use, they start to break down and we need to embrace that. So my desk is not messy, my, um, my desk is not tidy rather, my desk is a mess. Mm-hmm. And I've been trying to understand, well, why is my desk so messy? I'm a tidy person, why is my desk so messy? And the answer is, desks get messy when you use them. They're, they're, that's part of the process. Yeah. So I'm just trying to correct this balance and say, well, systems can work, tidiness can work, but it doesn't always work. And let's let's recognize and work with the mess when it's happening. It's so interesting. I, um, uh, you know, when I ran a nonprofit or, you know, had a number of people who reported to me, I would go buy people's cubicles or their desks or offices. And I would, there's no question I would make judgments about them based on the kind of the condition of their offices, that I would assume that if their office was messy, that they were disorganized, and that if I asked them to find something, they would be unlikely to do so. Um, And it's not necessarily true. It's not necessarily true at all. So I I spoke to the wonderful psychologist, Steve Whitaker, who used to work for AT&T Labs, he used to work for Lotus, and now he's at um, uh, UC Santa Cruz, if I remember rightly, um, is a researcher. And he studies how we organize our stuff, both physical stuff and our digital stuff. And what he finds is that um, when you are trying to uh, keep your space tidy, you will, if you're, if you're that way inclined, you will tidy away paperwork and so on that's on your desk. You'll put it in a filing cabinet. You organize it, you take your uh, your email in tray, and you identify folders for everything, and you drag all the emails into the folders, and everything looks incredibly tidy. Right. But, but in fact, you are not necessarily organized at all. You do not necessarily know where your stuff is at all. So Whitaker describes something he calls premature filing. So premature filing is when you, you put something in a folder, but you don't really understand what it is at the moment that you make that decision. And then a month later, when you're trying to find, well, where was that document? Where did I put it? You can't find it because the the category you applied to it doesn't actually make any sense to you anymore. So Whitaker found that people who leave you know, piles of paper on the, around their desk within reason are often better organized. They're more effective. They know where their stuff is. They keep quite small archives. They often throw a lot of stuff away because they... The, the stuff they're not using sinks to the bottom of the piles, and then from time to time you pick the pile up and you say, oh, most of this is useless, so you throw it away. Um, and the archives that you do have uh, work well. They're, they're full of stuff that you actually use. Whereas the filers, because they're trying to keep their space physically tidy, actually they don't really know where anything is, and they've got these huge archives full of stuff that they can't access. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying filing never works. Filing can work for certain kinds of information. I'm just saying that you you shouldn't judge by appearances. We we, all, we naturally we always do, uh, because we we're only human. Right. But somebody with a tidy desk is not necessarily organized, and well, somebody with a messy desk is not necessarily disorganized. Well, I think there's something also interesting, and I just had this experience over the weekend. Actually, is that I let my inbox email inbox get overloaded, and so, <clears throat> and it bothers me. And so Saturday morning, I put on some nice music and I went through, it's not that I hadn't read all the emails, they were all there. But in reading the, I I could say 1,026 emails I had, I went through them and there were things that connected 
to other things as I went through them in their aggregate. And I was like, oh, I need to put that person in touch with that person. And you know what? That would make a very interesting blog post because you know I would connect the dots between all of those emails in a way that I wouldn't have if I'd had just slid them into their appropriate buckets. And then back to your earlier point. So that's so I, I think I had that experience over the weekend. And I and I think to to your other point, which was how you started this book to begin with, and boy, do do we deal with this in any organizations, for profit or nonprofit, this notion of silos is it you know, files are basically silos. And the minute I put it in that silo, that it's in that bucket and that's where it stays. But when I had it on this sort of messy desktop of mine, it it wasn't anything but one of those items on my desktop I had to sort of sort through. And as I was in the process of sorting, I started to make connections. And, you know, we silo ourselves very naturally. There's, there's a lot of talk at the moment um, about uh, media silos and about the idea that uh, maybe, you know, everyone's in their own bubble and, and you know, the liberals only read liberal media and the conservatives only read conservative media. Um, and, and Facebook's making it worse because Facebook is algorithmically showing us only the fake news or only the, you know, only showing us what we want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is some truth in that, but I, I was speaking to um, an economist who studies really studies the data behind media today, and he was saying, you know, actually, the media is not nearly as polarized as we think. You know, what's polarized is our own social networks, not Facebook, just who we're friends with, yes, uh, our colleagues. That's where the polarization comes, and. Now, any algorithms that Facebook has on top of that, they, um, they have tried to measure this. They, it does push us a bit more towards polarization, a bit more towards a filter bubble, but it's fairly small compared to the effect of our own self-segregation. And this is, this is not just in terms of politics, this is in terms of all sorts of things. We just hang around with people who see the world the way we do for all kinds of reasons, but one of the reasons is uh, it makes us feel more comfortable that way. The um, the the or the organic sh- um, next question for me to ask you, which you talk about in the book, is um, the value of diversity in your life, in your workplace, and can you talk a little bit about sort of how you see diversity? Because I think it's a kind of a natural bridge from what you just mentioned. Yes, and of course there are lots of different things that we might mean when we talk about diversity, it could be an, an ethnic diversity, it could be a diversity of perspectives, of thinking tools, of ages, um, uh, um, there could be all sorts of things that we that we mean. It could just mean getting out and meeting new people, right. just talk, talking to strangers rather than the same old people all the time. So there's all kinds of things we could mean. Um, and ge- generally, I think people tend to celebrate diversity um, either genuinely or sometimes they just pay, pay lip service to the idea because they see that as being the right thing to do. Like, we, sh- we shouldn't just give the jobs to white men. You know, ev- everyone should get a, a, a fair opportunity. An opportunity, uh, it, uh, sort of an appropriateness. Yeah, and of course that, that's true. I mean, there is a, a strong ethical case for diversity, but there's also, I think, an operational case for, for diversity in that people with diverse opinions, diverse perspectives tend to make more creative decisions and more robust decisions. Um, not always, but in most in most of the sorts of problems that social psychologists have studied, 
diversity just helps you solve problems because you know even if you've got a bunch of really smart people in the room if they're all seeing the problem the same way and then someone comes along with a different perspective they are more likely to be able to unlock the key to that problem now what really interested me i think that's reasonably well known i don't think it's as well known as it should be but what really caught my attention while i was writing the book is research on how people feel about that process while it's happening right so I tell you, oh, if, if, I, if I give you a group of four people working on a problem and they're all friends who all know each other really well, if I then drop a, a total stranger into that group and ask the group to work on the problem, um, you might say, given what we've just discussed, well, I, I, guess, I guess the stranger would make the group more effective. That's true. So Catherine Phillips, who's a psychologist at Northwestern, did a wonderful study of this. And when you put the stranger in the group, the group is enormously more effective at solving the particular problems they were being given. This was a randomized trial. But what, what, what Phillips found was that when she interviewed people after the process and said, how did you feel about that? The, the groups of friends felt not only much more comfortable, but they also thought they'd solved the problems. Whereas the groups with a stranger felt uncomfortable and they also thought they hadn't solved the problems, even though, in fact, objectively speaking, they were much more successful. So they were, the, the diverse groups were in denial that the diversity had actually helped. Was it, a, was it a, because of a, um, because it wasn't comfortable? Um, that, that the pot I, I, had been stirred up? Because I, th- I sometimes think that stranger who's that outlier, and my wife and I were just talking about this the other night, about how sometimes she feels like, she feels like an alien being dropped into situations where she has some kind of opinion that sort of varies in some rather dramatic way from the rest of the group that she does actually she doesn't add value but in fact the group of friends in in your analogy actually feel like um like she's an outlier like i how do, how I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the because i would think you'd have to have more than one stranger with a group of friends in order for that for there to be some balance well in this particular case there were there were groups of four people so it was either four friends or three friends and a stranger right so i mean you might you might find you're going to find different things with different group sizes with different and the strangers in this particular case, they weren't particularly different to the friends. They were right. just unfamiliar. Yes, so there, okay, there were lots of, lots of different ways that you could study this sort of problem. Um, but it, what seems to have happened in this particular case, uh, and there's another brilliant study of um, jury decisions with all white juries or juries where there's a mix of races, and they're, they're trying to decide what to do about a black defendant. Um, uh, Samuel Summers uh, studied this, if I remember rightly, another psychologist about 10 years ago. And in both cases, what you might think is going on is, oh, well, the stranger or or the the African-American members of the jury, they bring fresh perspectives and they help the jury come to a better decision or they help the, the group come to a better decision. But a lot of it, what is actually going on is it's the majority who actually raise their game. So when they see the per- the presence of the person person who's different, who's right. a stranger, or who's black when they're white, um, or in in any other way is 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 not not the not like them, they actually raise their game. So they they're more careful with their thinking. Mm-hmm. They set out their reasoning with a bit more care. They're less sloppy. They're less casual, and they 
therefore produce better versions of themselves and better decisions, which I think is a very encouraging process. That's really very, very interesting. Um, I want to shift gears for a minute. Um, you make the argument in the book, um, well, you make, you identify, which you talk a little bit about attention deficit disorder. And um, uh, you make the argument that the mind of someone with ADD is a, is a messy one. Um, and I find that often people in the workplace find themselves a bit on the defensive about even sort of coming out as ADD. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and the opportunity that can present an organization to have a leader or senior staff member or board chair who actually is has ADD. Sure. So I, I should say from the outset that I, I'm not an expert on ADD at all, and I don't have a great deal of personal experience. Um, what, I, what I do have is the sight of these various uh, studies that have been done by psychologists. Mm -hmm. Where uh, So one was a study of, of people with ADD, and, and it, it, that was sufficiently severe that they had sought clinical help. So, you know, well, they weren't just sort of self-diagnosed. They had reached a certain stage. And a second was a study of people with um, uh, what is called low latent inhibition, which is a different thing. But low latent inhibition is basically the, the inability to filter out. Like you're in a restaurant and there's someone on the other side of the restaurant and they're having a conversation and you're trying to have a conversation. Can you kind of filter out their conversation or not? Can uh -huh. you filter out the, air, the noise of the air conditioning unit right. or not? Okay. The traffic noise. Um, so two separate studies, two separate groups of psychologists studying these two separate, separate but you know the, in some way related conditions, um, and in both cases what they found was that the the people who suffered from these conditions uh, were enormously more creative, and they were more creative both in narrow laboratory settings where they were asked to be, oh, um, here's a paperclip, give me a hundred uses for this paperclip, that, that kind of stuff. But they were also more creative in the sense that they had actually racked up significant creative achievements in their life. Now, mm -hmm. these, these were Harvard undergraduates. So obviously a Harvard undergraduate, this particular, these are a group of people who've already succeeded to some extent. Right. But the, the ones with uh, ADD or with low latent inhibition were far more likely to have um, had, a, had a creative work reviewed in the national newspapers, for example, hmm. or to have published a novel, or to have released an album. Um, so there was some, something very interesting going on here. These conditions that a lot of people would regard as disabling, and of course which can be disabling, yes. were, were for these people also a source of, of some kind of creative juice. Um, and it, it struck me that, the, and one of the people I interviewed for the book was uh, Brian Eno, the amazing musician and record producer who helped David Bowie create some of his greatest albums. Yep. And Brian Eno was was saying, well, he he absolutely cannot filter out uh, noise, music, conversation. He says it's a real problem for him. He, if he's if, if he's got to work, he's got to lock himself in a totally silent place. Um, and, but of course, he creates this amazing music that's inspired by ambient noises, mm -hmm. and so he's turned he's turned what he says is a problem for him. But and then you go, well, maybe it's a problem for him. But he seems to he's coped and he's turned it into something quite amazing. That's fascinating. Um, we are. Um, I'm. I have the good, great good fortune to be talking with Tim Harford, an economist, journalist, and broadcaster. He is the author of uh, Messy: uh, The Power of 
Oh, shoot. Where's the book? But the power of... I always forget the tagline. Dis disorder, to disorder, trans yeah. disorder to transform our lives. Um, he is also the author of The Million Selling Undercover Economist, a senior columnist at the Financial Times. Um, and we are talking about um, the word messy, what it means and what it looks like and its value in the world. Um, I have a couple of questions I want to shift uh, as we as we move towards uh, towards the uh, towards the end here. I want to talk m more specifically about the nonprofit space, if I may, and I want to ask you about <clears throat> the relationship between mess and risk or risk tolerance, right? Tolerance for failure. I know you have written a book about sort of the power of failure and what the lessons that can be learned from it, and. Um, you know, but think about it this way, uh, Tim, when you, you know, run a homeless shelter or an organization fighting for LGBT rights, there is a, and certainly I have run one of these organizations, you feel like there's really no margin for error and there is not a lot of time. And for nonprofit leaders, failure just doesn't seem like an option. And so I wonder if you could talk about sort of the the connection, the potential connection between mess and risk tolerance in an environment where it feel, where there feels like there's an awful lot at stake? Well, some of the case studies that I discuss in the book include Amazon and the, the early years of Amazon where the company nearly went bankrupt. Um, I talk about Erwin Rommel, who unfortunately was Adolf Hitler's favorite general, but was also an unbelievably effective tank commander. Mm -hmm. Um, so these are cases where there's not a lot of room for risk either, uh, and yet they embrace this risk-taking, uh, improvisational style, because their view was, well, in a fast-moving environment, if you make decisions very, very quickly, you can seize opportunities, and opportunities that will disappear if you spend too much time thinking and debating and preparing. Right. So I, I don't think that the mere fact that something is high risk uh, and that there doesn't seem to be much margin forever. That doesn't mean that you you can't embrace a certain degree of mess. And where I think the, the, the particularly interesting thing uh, that I touched on in the book that I really want to find out more about is the use of ideas from improv um, in in this sort of situation. Yes. So um, there's a there's a, a wonderful book called Improv Wisdom by Patricia, Patricia Ryan Madsen which was really inspiring to me while I was working on the, the chapters about improv. And, and Patricia emphasizes that one of the key skills of improv is you, you have to be paying attention to what's going on, what the people around you are doing, what they're saying, and to try to, to respond to that in a positive way rather than just shutting it down. Something really spoke to me as a parent. Um, and then Patricia, when I met her, said, well, you do realize they're teaching improv to cops and to firefighters and to doctors because there's this idea that it, you've got these very fast-moving situations, maybe very dangerous situations or, or situations that seem dangerous and stressful. And if you if you have that you know, openness and quick-wittedness to what's going on around and are able to respond in a positive way, right. it, you, may, you may well be able to turn situations that might end in tragedy into situations that actually are resolved quickly and, you know, with everybody laughing, it's all fine. So, you know, I, th th those improv skills, I think, yes, they're messy. Yes, they're risky. There is a risk in embracing that. Right. But they can also 
lead to very positive interactions too. Right. And what you're also describing is sort of using sort of what Patricia is doing was sort of building that muscle, right? So that you can seize opportunities and move quickly and that, that improv skills can actually help you there. Yeah. And it takes, I think it takes ironically practice because we yeah. think of improv as being a thing that you just make up on the spot. Well, you know, it turns out it, it's a lot of hard work no, and you need to con condition work. to yourself totally. to, to respond in that way. Totally. So, um, Let's apply your, your, some of the, the things that you've learned by learned and taught us by uh, with your book to the nonprofit sector as I sort of define this notion of mess, and maybe help help the folks who are out there listening, nonprofit leaders at the staff and the board level, understand the opportunities that could rest ahead for them if they sort of embrace this concept. Um, so. I, I talk quite a bit about this messy structure in my upcoming book and had to work mighty hard with the publisher to persuade them to put a garbage can on the cover. Um, but what I talk about is that nonprofits are sort of hardwired to be messy because um, you start with uh, very intense, high-performing staff leaders who are often not, uh, not terribly well-paid, not all the time, um, and that they rely on the efforts. So you have these people that have an urgent mission. They rely on the efforts of people who volunteer. They get paid nothing to get the work done. And then they actually report to another group of volunteers who all have full-time jobs, all get paid nothing, and are expected to actually give the organization not only time but money. And then you add to it clients, stakeholders, donors, uh, staff members who expect to have a voice, uh, vocal opposition, depending on the sort of the cause you're engaged in, uh, funders who expect more data than you can afford to pull together, right? So you have all of this stuff. This is what a nonprofit is like, right? And um, and I also write in, in, in my book, which I also sort of grab from some of Jim Collins' work about the power doesn't come from above you, it sort of comes from all around you in the social sector. Um, so I, I, guess I, I guess I have, uh, you know, my question to you is, do you have advice, if I'm running a nonprofit and it looks like this and it's kind of hardwired to be sort of messy, you know, what kind of advice do you have for the, for the folks who are listening about how to take advantage of that mess, um, how, how not to let it sort of, kind of run away with itself and maximize the impact of your organization as a result? Well, well, I mean, my first piece of advice, I think, Joan, is that everyone needs to read your book because <laughs> you, you're, you, you're the expert and, and you, you've done the hard work on the nonprofit sector, but... Let me try. I, let me just say that I did not ask Tim to say that. <laughs> just, I just want to say that for the record. Continue, Tim. So, so uh, yeah, um, you're welcome. So, um, a couple of things. So, one is, um, you know, you need to impose systems when you can impose systems. Okay, you can't, people can't be improvising everything all the time. And to 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 embrace mess in a positive way, you've got to have as much structure as as is appropriate. And for all the reasons that you're describing, uh, I think generally I say to to people, well, you know, try and make it a bit messier. Um, embrace the mess. You're probably too tidy. You're probably you probably have too many systems. You're probably too scripted. Um, 
try and nudge it a bit more, a bit more improvisational, a bit messier and see what happens. But what you're describing is a situation is naturally messy. Right. Naturally, a lot of stuff is being uh, contested. A lot of stuff is being made up on the spot. So, you know, at, th- at that point, I'm like, well, don't forget, tidy can also work. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's also got to be this, um, people need to be alive. And this is very difficult for all of us to uh, the fact that out of this diversity, out of this disputation, out of the constant mistakes that get made in these difficult circumstances, there is always opportunity. So there's always some possibility that something interesting might happen. So let me give you a really pedestrian example. Please. And then and then uh, hopefully a slightly more inspiring example. So re- the really pedestrian example is actually not literally pedestrian because it's about catching the subway. When London subway, the London Underground, mm-hmm. uh, was closed a couple of years ago for a strike uh, for 48 hours, um, a lot of people had to find a different way to get to work. And a bunch of economists got hold of the data set that was produced because we have this... Um, you know, this subway pass you can use on the buses, you can use on all kinds of transport around London. So right. really good data about how people were getting around. And what they found was tens of thousands of commuters who took the same route to work every single day, they had changed their route on the day of the strike and never changed back. And what they had found was they had been doing it wrong all their lives. <laughs> and it was it was the this kind of nudge to the system, this shock from the strike that made them realize, oh, there was this better way. I could have discovered it all along, but I actually, I needed um, that shock to discover it. So, you know, we need to be alert to the fact that, you know, whenever, th- whenever things don't work out quite how we Im- we imagine them or how we plan them, um, maybe, just maybe, the new way is better, or, or at least the new way contains uh, the roots of something that that has the potential to be better. Before you tell your next adve- example, I can't help but think as you tell that story that um, January 20th here in the United States, um, for some, might be seen as the shutting down of the London Underground, right? And um, and that organiz- non-profit organizations on both sides of the aisle, and in fact, m- you know, for... Uh, may have to actually look at alternative routes, and that that may not be a bad thing. It, it, it may not be. I mean, we, we have to be realistic. Sometimes, you know, I'm not saying that nothing bad ever happens in the world because good stuff always comes out of, what, you know, whatever disaster there is. Sometimes bad things do happen, right. and they are just bad. And we need to recognize that and not be panglossy about it. Um, but I think it is clear that the the election of Donald Trump is going to be a shock to a lot of systems, no, yes. not just in the United States. Um, and I, I can only hope it's going to be a positive shock. And I think a lot of the people who elected Donald Trump are hoping that he he is going to be the positive shock. He is going to destroy things that should be destroyed. Right. And and out of that, not necessarily from Trump, but from the people who come after him will come something better. But even if you don't see it that way, even if you didn't vote for Trump and and are disappointed that he, he's become the president, you could still say, well, it's still a shock, and it's a shock that will provoke resistance and reform and protest and activism and political engagement among people who weren't politically engaged. So I think it's legitimate for both sides to see this as a, a fracture, a rupture, 
that will potentially lead to something better. And it's mm-hmm. incumbent on both sides of the political aisle to try to find that opportunity. Yes, I think that is that 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 I don't think I could have said it any better. Um, we are actually out of time. Um, you Can said I tell you, you wanted a very to tell quick David you want, Bowie Yeah, you story? had one more story though, didn't you? So yeah, David. So Brian Eno, this process of 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 noticing that something interesting has happened. Brian Eno told me when he was working with David. Um, you could be nearly at the moment of perfection. A track could be just so close to being finished and so close to being wonderful. And someone would make some mistake. And he said, David Bowie would just go, wait, that thing that just happened is more interesting than what we're working on. And we need to, the, the perfect thing will wait. We can, it's not going anywhere. But first we need to explore the mistake. Because in that mistake, there's something something worth playing around with, something worth developing, and it may become something beautiful. And out of all the people that Eno's worked with, he said David Bowie had a particular skill for that, a particular courage and curiosity that perhaps we should all aspire to. Yeah, I I, I read that section of your book and was really quite taken with it. Um, We... um, uh, Tim, this has really been such an interesting conversation for me. I, I... I care about whether my listeners found it interesting, but I could just say for myself completely selfishly, I found it super interesting and I really, really appreciate your spending time with me. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for your interest and uh, look forward to seeing your book, Joe, when it comes out. So um, please, in, in the episode notes, you will find a link to Tim's book, which is called Messy, the Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. Uh, and uh, you will also find links to some of his other books as well. Um, we are out of time. You are finished on the elliptical or have arrived at your place of business. Um, and thank you for um, spending uh, a few minutes with us as we explored um, the opportunities that can come of being messy. Uh, again, if you would like to, you can find lots of good resources for uh, nonprofit leaders at the staff and the board level at my blog at www.joangarry with two rs.com uh, and you can subscribe right on the home page and um, if you'd like to know more about the aforementioned book you can go on over to my book website at www.nonprofitsaremessy.com And um, I've told that pre-orders are a uh, significant factor in how Amazon uh, markets and promotes. So a pre-order would be swell. And uh, if you go over to the website, there are some uh, pretty interesting, and I hope you will find valuable bonuses that come with pre-ordering the book. So with all of that said, um, thank you for joining me. uh, And as always, thank you for the work that you do. I'll talk to you next time. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.